Welcome to Science Night, presented by the River Power Podcast Bell. Welcome back to episode three of Science Night. Tonight, I got to talk with Jason Organ. He's an anatomist, and he is a professor at the Indiana University School of Medicine. And I mean, let's be honest, he is probably more responsible for this entire enterprise than anyone else that I have engaged with. I met Jason a about a year ago, maybe a little bit longer, when I was chosen to uh, go to a science communication workshop that he and a colleague were putting on in Indiana. And it's really where I learned both the importance of how to communicate science and some of the tools that have allowed me to do it. And you're probably thinking like, well, he didn't do a very good job. That is more of a critique on my ability to speak clearly than Jason's teaching ability. Tonight, we do talk about his work at the beginning, and we tend to go on the typical Science Night interview path, but I think what you'll be most interested in, in is his opinion on how scientists can communicate their work effectively and why it is so important and kind of the downstream effects to that skill. I hope you enjoy my interview with Jason Organ. Jason, thank you for doing this with me today. I know that I am asking you to take some time, some precious time out of your day, and I really appreciate it. Thanks, James. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. Awesome. So the thing I want to start out with first is probably the question that you get most often, but I think it's a good jumping off point. And uh, that is, could you tell us a little bit about what you do? <laughs> yeah, I wish I could tell you all the things that I do. But if I had to summarize it, I would say that um, first things first, I am a science educator. And my area of um, interest in that regard is in the anatomical sciences. So I teach medical gross anatomy, I teach graduate and undergraduate level dissection-based human anatomy. And so I consider myself an educator first, but that said, um, that education doesn't, doesn't stop at the classroom. I'm also a science communicator and I'm also uh, an independent um, researcher. Um, I, you know, I, I run a research lab and, uh, and run a research program. And it's not even related to, to science communication necessarily. Um, it is just one of the many hats that I wear. So. So science communication, um, with regard to that hat, you know, I, um, the editor and writer of the PLOS science communication blog, um, I have been working for several years training scientists to better communicate their work using the approaches of applied improvisational theater theory. And um, so I work with a colleague, uh, Dr. Krista Hoffman-Longton in the communication studies department here at Indiana University. Uh, Purdue University, Indianapolis, IUPUI. It's a long mouthful, alphabet soup. She is my colleague over there in the communication studies department. And together we, we run workshops to train scientists, um, both locally and nationally. And we've actually extended internationally over the last several months as well. Although now that's shut down, so we're not going anywhere. And then again, I, I run a basic science research lab. So my training is in functional anatomy. And in particular, I'm interested in how bone and muscle shape affects the way that they work and how can we 
change those shapes or the construction of the material within those structures like muscle and bone uh, to make them work more efficiently. So I studied these from an evolutionary perspective as a PhD student. Um, I moved sort of into the more clinical realm as a postdoc. And um, over the last several years here, I've been working on a disease uh, that we call brittle bone disease. It's formally called osteogenesis imperfecta. It's a disease where collagen in bone doesn't assemble properly. And so you've got problems with the way the collagen is synthesized. Uh, so it's a genetic disorder. And uh, because it's a genetic disorder, it actually affects children um, in addition to adults. And so that's really what sort of got my attention. Um, I have two kids of my own. And when I was watching them learn to walk, it was a very different experience for me uh, than what I came to learn was the experience for parents who have children with OI, as we call it, osteogenesis imperfecta. Um, because every time my kids would fall over, they would stand back up and my wife and I would laugh at them because <laughs> they kind of look like drunk undergraduate students. But when a, a parent with a child who has OI watches that same sort of um, process happen, they never know whether they're gonna be rushing to the emergency room shortly thereafter because children with brittle bones fracture their bones hundreds of potentially hundreds of times in their lifetime. So sneezing can break ribs, falling over learning to walk can break femurs or thigh bones. So it's not good at all. And my experience was vastly different uh, than what I came to learn was the experience of parents there. So it really tugged at my heartstrings and made me realize that the approaches that I had been using to study evolution of bone and muscle could be very easily adapted to study mechanical processes in bones and muscles in uh, a clinical scenario. So I've started studying the basic science behind that a little bit more. So what are some of the methods that you use to study this? That's a great question. Um, so because we study bone, we have to use a vertebrate animal model. So what I mean is that we have to use animals that have bones. We can't use tissues. We have to use actual organisms to study this. And it's highly unethical to do this in humans first. Um, it's, you know, um, it is questionable uh, to do it in animals too. To some people, I totally understand it. Um, I personally am a big animal rights supporter. Um, so it pains me a lot to know that that we have to use animals to do this kind of work. Um, it's never an easy thing to do. And so, so I feel like I'm actually the right kind of person to do animal work because it hurts me so much <laughs> that we have to do this. Um, but in order to do it, we, we have a, a mouse model that we use. So um, a mouse that has been bred to have the same collagen gene mutation that um, patients with OI have. And therefore the collagen doesn't assemble properly in their bones and they get what we call dysmorphologies or um, changes in the shapes of the bones and the structure of the bones to, uh, that, that are very closely aligned with what you would see in the clinical scenario in a human. And so what we do is we, we're interested in different drug effects or different exercise effects. Um, you know, one of the best ways to grow bone, especially when you're a child, is to exercise in a high impact environment. So go outside, run, jump, do all the things that kids do, right? But if you have OI, all of that is potentially problematic um, because every time you jump or run or fall over, you could break uh, one of your bones. And so we have to find new ways to try to do that. So what we've been doing in my lab um, is trying to find non sort of low impact or medium impact exercise type work um, that would potentially be beneficial. 
I mean, we think of things like swimming, you know, being low impact, high resistance. Um, and that's all well and good, but it's not really easy to teach a mouse to swim. Um, so what we've been doing in my lab is, is raising them in a simulated environment where they have to live in a fake arboreal environment. Like they're living on the branches of a tree. And so they're walking on high wires the whole time. They're trying to balance over those wires and find their, they have little nesting places and they have, you know, feeding boxes. But, but in order to get to their nest and their feeding boxes, they have to climb through all of these, you know, these fine branches. Um, and what that does is it actually makes them bend their bones in directions that their bone is not used to bending. And that stimulates bone growth in a way that is more natural, uh, the same way that high impact exercise does it, but it does it in a low impact environment. So it's pretty cool. What we've been able to do is not necessarily change the shape of the bones, but change the um, resistance of bone to fracture. And that's called toughness. So there's a couple of mechanical measures. Bone strength is how much force it takes to break a bone. But bone toughness is how much force it takes to propagate a crack once that crack has, has started to, to form. And so we've been able to increase the toughness of bone without changing the shape of the bone and not changing the ultimate strength of the bone, which is good and bad. Um, you know, if you don't change the strength of the bone, they're still going to fracture. But if they start to fracture and then they're tougher and they don't propagate those cracks all the way through, well, there's time in between then that you can actually save that bone from, from fracturing. And so that's kind of where we are right now. We've had some trouble with, with the mice that are bred for this, with this genetic disorder, because they have so many problems. Um, but at least within our normal mice at this point, we've got a good effect that we're hoping to get published this summer. Yeah, assuming, you know, the world doesn't implode. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like you're doing really important and um, interesting work. And I also like that with your uh, breeding this mouse population in a an arboreal high wire uh, environment that you're also sort of proving or attempting to prove the primate angiospore coevolution theory at the same time, which is which is really fun, and maybe that so, will be a yeah. follow up episode. <laughs> Actually, that that was the impetus for this model. Truthfully, oh wow, um, was that uh, that you know primates evolved from a small mouse like creature. And um, it was an arboreal, I'm sorry, it was a terrestrial creature. Um, but what, one of the unique things about primates is that they're arboreally adapted. So they're used to living in trees. So the question was, how could you take a, an animal that um, evolved to live on the ground and make it a tree living animal? And so this was a model that actually started by, was started by Craig Byron down at Mercer, who is a close colleague of mine, good friend. And he was interested in sort of how could uh, evolution how could you sort of um, address the questions of early primate evolution using an experimental model like this? Um, what he found actually was fascinating, and that is within the lifetime of that, that one generation of animals, so you take animals that are weaned at say 21 days, put them into this environment, and six to eight weeks later, sacrifice them and look at their bone shape, um, they were able to develop opposable big toes. You know, they were rudimentary, they weren't perfectly opposable, not like a human or primate opposable thumb or, you know, primate opposable big toe, but they were getting there, right? They were able to use their toe in a way that would help them grasp onto the wires. It was fascinating. And so you could actually see that change. Bone plasticity is high enough that you could actually see that in a three-dimensional analysis of bone shape. And so it's pretty neat. And that sort of got me thinking, okay, well, if that happens there, how can we use this to address a clinical scenario? And so we took it and went that direction with it. Well, Craig and I have been talking for a long time about trying to get back to the uh, 
to the evolution experiments that would actually be really interesting from that primate origins question. It's amazing. It's amazing what that first spark of curiosity can do to push so many aspects of science forward. Um, I think that is what we're finding out by doing these interviews is that sometimes the impetus for discovery is not what you would expect it to be. You know, for every very traditional model where I use this evidence to get to this evidence to get to this evidence, there is also the story of Lieberger's son finding a new species by by racing his father in Africa. So it's you can never really you can never really discount any avenue in science I've found. It's true. They say the Laetoli footprints, you know, the famous um, famous three and a half million year old footprints from Laetoli that show Australopithecines walking bipedally and it looks like more than one individual. They were found because someone dropped a big ball of elephant dung during a game of catch. So, <laughs> um, so you're absolutely right, right? The, it's just crazy how these uh, these discoveries are made sometimes. <laughs> So you are, you will be the first interview of somebody whose uh, research is more lab-based and not necessarily field-based. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience is like, working working uh, primarily in the lab rather than in the field? Um, sure. So, I, you know, I've done field work, so I recognize the trials and tribulations that come with that. Um, I have not done fossil field work, but I've done primate behavior field work down in Costa Rica. And that is a different beast altogether, right? I mean, it's it's actually quite interesting um, how different and just transformative my shift to lab-based work has been. I used to think that, you know, working in a research lab would be very isolating because, you know, you're working on a simple problem, actually not a simple, single problem, and you're probably the only one on campus that's looking at that. I've been fortunate that that where I made this transition was at Indiana University, which by most accounts is probably among the top places in the world to do bone research. We have something like 45 principal investigators across 10 to 12 different uh, departments here on, on the campus that study bone in some way. And that's clinical, that's cellular, it's tissue-based, it's mechanics-based, it's genetics-based, it's you name it, we have it. We have some of the top bone researchers in the world on campus and we've been pulling them together. And so what we don't have is actually much of an evolutionary bone group, although we've been growing that over the last couple of years too, at least people who have that background. So I actually found that moving into the, the lab-based sphere of research became less isolating than I thought it would be. Um, and actually making field work, which you know is isolating, even more of an isolating um, experience than being on a, a campus where if, for example, one of our mechanical testers breaks, uh, or we don't have the right jig for the machine or, or something's not working properly, we can walk down the hallway or across to the other side of campus and get our experiments done the same day still. Mm -hmm. um, because there are so many people doing so many similar things. We all work together. It's pretty cool. Um, so that's been my experience. Making that transition was great, um, but it is very different, right? I was trained as a field researcher. Mm -hmm. And so using those approaches, we've been able to bring some of our field research experience into the lab, which has been interesting. So for example, we wanted to know what our animals were doing on the high wires. So we trained one of our undergraduates to do instantaneous focal animal sampling. 
So he would go in there and uh, at regular intervals, um, you know, every 12 hours, or I can't remember exactly what the protocol was, this was years ago. He would go in there and he would observe the mice and he would pick one animal and he would every, you know, 45 seconds or minute and a half or whatever, he would write down according to a chart what that animal was doing. Was it resting? Was it feeding? Was it moving? You know, how was it moving? And so we were able to get a real nice um, sort of understanding of how our animals were moving. And that was based entirely on field primate behavior research. And mm -hmm. so it's it pretty interesting. I want to circle back to, uh, you mentioned having undergraduates as part of your research team. And I think that might be something that, you know, maybe the average high school student or even the average early undergraduate student may not realize is an opportunity for them on uh, many of the campuses in, in the United States. Could you talk about, you know, if you had one piece of advice to give to an undergraduate that was interested in something, how to go about making those connections and possibly having those opportunities available to them? Sure. Well, there are several national programs. That's the first thing to, to sort of think about. So there's several national programs that are set up to align high school or undergraduate students with a, with a laboratory research experience. Um, the one that I've worked with the most is something called Project SEED which is a program based or run um, initially by the American Chemical Society. Um, it's, in, it's a national program now, but we have a really strong chapter apparently here in Indianapolis that brings students from disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds and places them in medical school um, laboratories for the summer. And it is a program where students get a, a stipend. And so they actually uh, are encouraged to take a job in sciences as opposed to a job flipping burgers at a fast food chain, right? So they're getting paid probably very similar to what they would have been paid for the summer of work in a fast food restaurant, but getting um, different experiences. And so it's really quite nice. So what I would say is if you're an undergraduate student looking or a high school student looking for something, make sure that you've explored all of the programs that are on your campus. At the undergraduate level on our campus, we have a really great program called the Life Health Sciences internship program, LHSI. And it takes undergraduates from the IUPUI campus, um, which is again, Indiana, Indiana University, Purdue University at Indianapolis, which is the campus across the street from the IU School of Medicine main campus, which is in Indianapolis. So IU School of Medicine is complicated. There are like nine campuses. And so we're the largest medical school in the country and uh, it's pretty cumbersome. But the main campus is here in Indianapolis, which is where I am. And uh, we are right there next to IUPUI. So we have, you know, 30,000 undergraduate students and also the School of Medicine, School of Law, School of uh, Dentistry, all sort of in one place. It's pretty cool. That said, this LHSI program is run out of IUPUI, but almost entirely funnels students to programs in the School of Medicine and the School of Dentistry. And what they do is they vet students who are interested in working in life sciences. And they sort of vet them, um, set up interviews, and match them to labs, um, and then pay a stipend for the year. So it's, um, it's really inexpensive for the PI, for the principal investigator to do it. Really the only cost is the cost of the experiments themselves. And then the person power is paid by this internship program. It's really a fascinating program. And if you can find a program like that on your campus, huge benefit down the road, right? I have written, I've written several 
letters of recommendation for medical school and graduate school for students who have finished that program as one of my interns. And excuse me, we have a really good track record of getting those people into the programs they're uh, <laughs> they're trying to get into. And so um, one of my very first LHSI students now is a PhD candidate at Vanderbilt in bio in biomedical engineering. The guy is brilliant. I've had several um, students go on to medical school. One of same cohort actually as that first student um, or maybe the cohort after but we all they all work together in the lab at the same time in, in successive years he just finished his fourth year of medical school and matched the residency program to do um, I think it was radiology nevertheless it was bone related it might have been orthopedics but I think it was radiology and uh, and so you know they're great programs to establish the sort of rapport that you need to get those strong letters of recommendation and also to get you the experience that you need to make a difference in the world. So um, explore those opportunities to the best of your ability. I would also really encourage faculty to find ways to connect with those programs because finding good, reliable workforce at a low cost is one of the best things that you can do for your research lab. And it often seems like these uh, programs are more limited by the availability for faculty than uh, interest from undergraduate and high school students. So yeah, if you are a faculty member with a lab listening, sign up with one of these programs. Uh, mentorship is so important in sciences. And uh, since we're talking about mentorship in the sciences, there has to be someone or something that got you interested in your work. Uh, you know, it's, there's always that, that one thing that's like, oh, you know, I really want to do something like this when I get a little bit older. So could you talk a little bit about that spark of curiosity that drove you towards what you are today? Sure. So I think it's kind of a, as I'm sure you're not surprised to hear, it's a multifaceted sort of story, right? I got interested in science because my dad is a scientist. So it was never really an option for me not to like it, right? I mean, it was just, it was part of our everyday life. You know, I guess if I had wanted to go into a career that was not science-based, I would not have been shunned for that. But I can't imagine not wanting to do something like this because it just made such a huge impact in my life for so many years as I was, you know, growing up. But the reason I'm in this area has nothing to do with my dad. <laughs> my dad's a, a microbiologist by training and uh, he then went on for, so he had a PhD, then went on to get his MD. So he was, he's a retired pediatrician now who doesn't really do science-based anything anymore. But that was, you know, that was the culture in our house. Um, what got me into this area was my very first um, large lecture course as an undergraduate. I took, I think my first semester or my second semester of college, um, Introduction to Biological Anthropology. It was uh, Dr. Carol Ward was teaching that course. And, uh, you know, it was like 150, 200 students she didn't know me from Adam, <laughs> but she made such an impression on me in that classroom that I volunteered in her lab and she let me come in to, to you know, catalog fossils. So Carol is a, is a trained anatomist. Um, she's a biological anthropologist and she's one of the world's experts on early human evolution. Um, she's worked extensively with early Australopithecines. So Lucy and her relatives and even earlier, one of the species that Carol has has done the most work with, aside from her graduate work, um, which was on Miocene ape evolution uh, species called Proconsul, a genus called Proconsul, 
Um, she worked on Australopithecus anamensis, which was from Kanapoi and Alia Bay uh, in Kenya. And it's a, it's a really fascinating, you know, four, four and a half million year old fossil hominid. It was being in the lab when she was coming back with all this cast of all this brand new material that they had just unearthed. Um, and she was putting together this manuscript to describe all these fossils. That's when I was volunteering in her lab and it was just amazing to me. I was an anthropology student as an undergrad. I realized that uh, this was what I wanted to do with my life. And so I was really fortunate that she let me stay in her lab as a volunteer for four years. And, uh, and I got a lot of great experience out of it. Um, and probably the most influential thing that she ever said to me was, you're probably not going to get into a graduate program that you want to get into. You know, if you want to continue to do anatomically based biological anthropology, you aren't going to make it. And that chip on my shoulder that I carried, um, I am grateful to her for saying that. I can still remember sitting in her office hearing that, thinking that is not true, and I'm going to show you that that's not true. Um, <laughs> that gave me the impetus to, to succeed, and so I'm grateful for that. And that brings out, that that was a, an excellent story, and it is great to see that you are also um, kind of taking that effort to foster undergraduates into your own career. So I think I think Dr. Ward would be extremely happy about that. And I'm sure she's told you that she's extremely happy about that. Yeah, she's all right. <laughs> um, and in, in a world in a world where everything has already been determined, possibly future future science night guest, fingers crossed, right? She's fantastic. She'd be great on your show. Yeah. But I think it's important to talk about how she did tell you that this may not be a possibility because you often hear stories of a uh, maybe like a graduate school advisor having their their 10 students follow them around and become these great researchers with the realization that maybe one of them is going to have a job like their advisor once they get out of graduate school so how important is it for maybe not the student, but the academy to be realistic when they need to be realistic, you know, realistic without limiting? That's a great question. Um, and actually, I think it gets a lot of little issues um, that actually in aggregate are big issues, right? So we have a real problem in academia where the there are not enough jobs like the ones that I have and others have, right? As a professor on a tenure track, you know, solid line here at the university for the number of graduates that we put out every year. That's a problem, but it's only a problem if if principal investigators fail to recognize that there are career options outside of the academy. And thankfully that seems to be changing, right? It seems to be that um, more and more faculty are realizing that the faculty job stream is not the only thing one can do with a PhD. And so, to that end, actually, you know, we've spent a lot of effort training students, learners at all levels, um, faculty, postdocs, but graduate students especially, how to become more effective at communicating their work so that they have a skill set outside of laboratory-based, right? I mean, the first step of the scientific method is observation. The last step of the scientific method is dissemination, right? If you don't have those two endpoints, you don't have much of anything. If you don't observe something and come up with a question that you want to ask and find a way to test it, 
you've got nothing. And if you find a way to test a question or test test a hypothesis or answer a question that you have, but you never tell anyone what that answer is, you've also failed. And so we've spent a lot of effort trying to work on that back end. Um, how does one get better at communicating their work and therefore open up uh, many additional possibilities for a career outside of just bench research or tenure stream faculty lines? Yeah, I think that's so important because I think it's easy to think of somebody with a terminal degree as somebody who is super specialized in one chunk of knowledge. But in reality, you have like the ultimate critical thinker or you have the ultimate problem solver because they've spent a good portion of their life doing just that. You know, it was focused on that terminal degree subject, but those skills, if given the opportunity to kind of flourish in in graduate school, I think you you have the right person for a a really meticulous or complicated set of team-based exercises. And I, I think that translates into many more career paths um, than maybe even the people in industry are expecting. And and I think it's great that academia is starting to identify that and create that uh, culture within the program. So that's that's really encouraging to hear. What's been really interesting, James, is with regard to those life health sciences internships that I was talking about earlier, over the last two years, actually now going on a third year, Dr. Krista Hoffman-Longton and I, my colleague in the communication studies department, she and I have run an LHSI internship based on science communication, where She's also one of the co-editors of the PLOS SciCom blog. And so we've actually had an intern for two years now, two different interns, whose sole responsibility was running the social media channels and learning how to edit science-based work for public consumption. And um, we figured if we could target undergraduates and get them thinking about the importance of doing this now, when they go on eventually to more lab-based research programs, they'll have this tool in their back pocket that that others won't. And so we've actually been really successful with it. We had our, our best intern so far. Again, we're only a couple of years old in this internship, um, this particular line, but, but it just keeps getting better every year. And we're so excited for what's coming down the pike. And can you speak for a moment on how important it is for all scientists and all people engaged in science to become better at communicating their work to the general public? Absolutely. So again, a couple of different ways we can go with this, but let me first say that most of us are funded by the federal government. And if we're not funded by the federal government, we're funded by by individual programs or industries or charities that are interested um, in the work that we do, but are also run by the public, right? So our federal tax dollars and any of these foundations that we might work with are run by the public. And if we don't tell the public what we do in a way that they can understand it, we can't be upset when they don't give us money to do the work. We also can't be upset when they don't understand why it's critical to do that work. And so most of us are used to communicating only with our peers. And that's all well and good. It's important to be able to communicate with your peers. But what I would say is if you can communicate with your peers using language that the general public can understand, then you can then you can actually engage with the public. If you can only engage with your with your peers 
with jargon, there's no way you're going to be able to communicate what you do to the public in an effective manner. And so just like we think of, you know, when we play sports or we play musical instruments, we have to continually practice. There are drills that we should do. Like if we're learning to play basketball, you got to shoot, you know, a thousand free throws or whatever. Or if we're learning to play the piano, you got to work on your scales every day. Or my son, my oldest son is a, is a percussionist. So, you know, he's constantly working on his rudiments. If you don't do that, you don't get any better. And the, the skill set that we teach um, based on applied improvisational theater is really like a set of drills that you just practice over and over and over again. And ultimately, they become second nature to you and you are much more effective at communicating what you do because you're drawing on those types of drills that are more effective at engaging a non-specialist audience. And we, this is all based in literature. So, you know, we have a strong theoretical base for what we do. And I can say it is also incredibly fun to go through this training. You know, you open up a part of yourself that you didn't realize was there just waiting to come out and make you better at what you do. And I think this will go across the board at anyone. If you are better at communicating what you do, people will assume that what you're doing has value, uh, whether that is a scientist, somebody in industry, somebody in business, you know, if you can effectively get across your work, it immediately becomes more approachable, uh, which is, is the reason we're doing this podcast, right? I, if my theory is that if you make the scientists seem approachable, the work then becomes more approachable. I agree. Um, I couldn't agree more, actually. You know, when the scientist is seen as a person and not just a scientist, then, the, you know, there are ways to connect with that individual. You know, we always tell our students, you know, if you're going out to give an academic job talk, be sure you put yourself in your talk, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that was just good advice because it made, made the candidate seem like a person. What we didn't realize was that that was actually rooted in pretty strong theoretical underpinnings. And uh, from a communication theory perspective, like making yourself available actually helps establish credibility. Most credibility is established non-verbally, but when you put yourself in a scenario, you become a person, not just a role player here. Um, and so audience members can find a way to connect with you, right? So if you talk about your love of music, for example, you might be able to then talk about um, the evolution of sound or the evolution of hearing in a way that connects with somebody in your audience differently than if you didn't ever mention that you loved music. I and mean, maybe you don't love music, so maybe you love something else, right? But if you can put yourself into your work, your work becomes less about theory and more about experience. Yeah. And I found that being able to talk about your work to other scientists without using jargon, it also opens the door a little bit more for collaboration you especially interdisciplinary collaboration and it seems like you engage in interdisciplinary collaboration a lot you know you talk about your work with bones you talk your work about your work with uh, communication theory uh, and biological anthropology so can you talk for just a minute um, about how vital those uh, those relationships are to science in general absolutely uh, you know Having a multidisciplinary approach to your work means that um, you're not going to leave any stones unturned, right? There are often times that I have no idea what to do next, but because I've assembled a team around me of people who think differently and come at it from different perspectives, we always have somewhere to go. That's crucial. Um, and you're absolutely right. Being able to communicate what you do without 
inundating it with jargon means that more people can access what you're saying. Um, and that allows more people to then provide input. And so it's critical. I got started with the science communication stuff for a couple of reasons. Do we have time for a quick story? Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. So uh, I, I grew up in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Missouri. We kind of talked about that already. And what was interesting about that is that my PhD is in anatomy, not in anthropology. I ended up leaving anthropology altogether, in part because of my experience as a graduate student and undergraduate at Missouri, which don't get me wrong, the, the discipline's great. But it is a discipline that is made up of four different subdisciplines. So anthropology is made up of cultural anthropology, archaeology, linguistics, and then biological anthropology. And anthropology is the study of people. Biological anthropology, at least the part that I'm most interested in, is about the study of the fossil history of humans. But biological anthropology is also about the biology of humans. So there's been sort of spinoffs. Um, in the discipline with regard to things like human biology that sort of take a more biological approach than anthropology does. But within that subdiscipline, it's very biologically oriented. But once you leave that subdiscipline, it's about culture, whether that's culture current, whether that's, you know, whether that culture is manifested as language, whether that culture is the material remains from ancient cultures. And so they have a set of, there's a set of, of jargon buzzwords that are used in the disciplines, subdisciplines of anthropology that are not shared among all four of them. And so when I would sit around and talk about the really interesting bumps and grooves on fossils that I was looking at as a master's student or an undergraduate, and I was talking about the biology behind that, any of the students that I was with that were not biological or anthropology students would be uninterested and their eyes would glaze over. But yet they were in the same field that I am in. And I realized that there was a communication problem within the discipline. And if that communication problem exists within the discipline, imagine how the public sees that, right? And I consider biological anthropologists to be sort of the frontline defenders against anti-evolution sort of initiatives throughout the country. And so if we don't have biological anthropologists who can clearly articulate what's going on and what they see in the fossil record and the importance of understanding on the evolutionary history of our own species, then we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. So I realized that there was a real communication problem there. And if there was a communication problem there, I needed to find the group of people that I could actually converse with. Because at the time I wasn't thinking, oh, I need to change away, you know, away from using jargon. I was thinking I need to find the people who understand what I'm talking about, right? Which I did. I found the anatomists. And then I realized that, you know, that doesn't get me that far, right? I mean, yeah, I got a small group of people now who understand all the jargon I'm using, but if I want to tell anybody else what I'm doing, if I'm sitting at Thanksgiving dinner and somebody asks me what I'm working on, I better be able to tell them what I'm working on without using the jargon that my colleagues use, or I'm going to lose them all and the conversation will shift very quickly to, you know, whatever the Kardashians are doing again or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, and so if I want to keep the attention on the science that I need to find a way to be engaging about it and, and find a way to, to connect with the people who don't know the jargon, right? So stop using it. I've always found that the best science communicators are the ones that can just kind of seamlessly work the science into the topic. And then you find yourself having this 
scientific conversation without even realizing that you've gotten to that point. Um, the people who are just really good at bringing, and I don't want to say like bringing their work down, but it, it is kind of that. It's bringing their work down to the level where people without that training are able to understand it. And, you know, I always tell students in the anatomy lab that the reason I can do this and I can tell you about this is because I've done it for a fair amount of time at this point. It's not because I am blessed with this knowledge of anatomy. It's because I've been exposed to it. And if you are exposed to it, you can also get to that point. But then you leave out the, if you are exposed to it by someone who can communicate that method or that uh, structure to you effectively. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, but I think that there's uh, an important point to be made there. And that is, well, you made two points that were really great. First of all, um, you're able to do what you do in the gross anatomy lab because you've been there before. You've been doing this for a while and you have a good grasp of the material. And that's important. Um, what's important is that communication skills are not innate. Um, and this relates to the second point that you made um, about the best science communicators seemingly doing it seemingly effortlessly. And it's not effortless at all. Um, they have practiced and practiced and practiced and they have a skill set now and a toolbox that they can draw on uh, or draw from to be able to communicate what they're what they're talking about. So while it may seem seamless and effortless, it is absolutely not. And you've been working pretty hard at that in the gross anatomy lab. Um, and that's why you're effective as an educator. But once you get outside of the anatomical sciences, you have to start thinking about it more, right? And uh, and that's where practicing these drills that, that we train you in will be helpful. You know, I think that's a critically important point. You know, there's a really good example of that. Brian Green, who is a theoretical physicist and is the founder of World Science Day in New York and is an expert in string theory. He is interviewed all the time about string theory. He's, he writes popular books about it. You know, string theory is basically a theory that uh, that talks about the way that that particles move motion happens um, at very small length scales. So we're talking, you know, really small quarks and those kinds of things. And, you know, he uses a metaphor all the time about these strings being like the vibrating strings on a cello. And he always does the same sort of hand movement where he moves his hand up and down and shows the vibrating of the strings, right? And he makes it look so easy. But if you watch interviews with him, it's always the same thing, right? And it's well rehearsed and it's well thought out and it's effective. So it doesn't mean that you always have to be able to communicate on the fly to be effective. What it means is that you have to have that toolbox to draw on so that you can make it look effortless where you slide the science into the normal conversation because you've rehearsed it, you've practiced the best way to communicate that particular aspect of your work. Yeah, it's just like every other aspect of a scientist's job. It is the repetition. You know, you're, you're looking for something that is right for now, and then it, it is in the repetition where you are either gaining more evidence for your theory or you are pivoting, course correcting, and then coming back to the repetition again. Um, so it seems like the average scientist already has a lot of the tools for that toolbox. It's just putting it towards a different end goal. I would agree. Yep. We're going to flawlessly pivot towards our last point. And I, I want to get to this point by talking about what you've just done. So for people who don't know you, uh, you have just 
finished a long path towards tenure. Okay. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that process? And then also, how are you feeling right now? <laughs> is it relief? Is it different than what you were expecting? Or is it even better? So that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I'm excited um, that I will be able to voice opinions um, in my department and have them matter more than they had before. I am, have a unique situation in the sense that I spent four years in a non-tenure track position before I came to IU, and I didn't um, get credit for those toward tenure at IU. And IU School of Medicine has a nine-year tenure clock that I am the first cohort, I think, or the second cohort to be ushered through on that timeline. So most promotion or tenure cycles are, I think, about six years. And that's appropriate. Nine years is awesome, <laughs> but it's nine years for a reason. And that's because um, the expectations for tenure on the research track at a school of medicine are vastly different than they are in other departments. And so they wanted to make sure that no one was going to miss out on the opportunity because of family circumstances. And I think the nine year tenure clock was in instituted, you know, from a really good place. And that was to make sure that women who were childbearing were not being penalized for reproducing. And so they had enough time to get what they needed in terms of establishing a national reputation. And that's the, the biggest criteria for tenure and promotion at IU is, you know, do you have a national reputation in your work and how do you demonstrate that? And so 13 years as an assistant professor was a long road to hoe. I'm grateful that it's over. My situation was also made unique by the, by the fact that while I was an assistant professor, I held national office for the American Association for Anatomy as a member of the board of directors. And I have been leading initiatives at the national level and actually international level with my work with the Anatomical Society as well for several years here. <laughs> Yet in my department, I was the most junior of junior people, right? And so on the one hand, my peers had elected me to represent them and to voice opinions on the national and international levels, but I wasn't able to articulate a um, strong opinion uh, and have it count for much at the department level. <laughs> so I'm grateful that now I have earned, however um, superficially, more of the respect of my colleagues now at the School of Medicine here and in my department so that I can have an opinion and have it counted differently than it was counted before. But other than that, there's really been no difference. It's important. So, I, you know, I don't mean that to sound like tenure is not an important thing for faculty. It's critically important, especially for those of us who have done any work in evolutionary biology. I live in a very red state. I work for a public institution. And therefore, I need the protections of tenure to be able to continue to do work in evolutionary biology without fear that I will be silenced or not allowed to continue that line of inquiry because of changing political opinions. So it's important for that. And several colleagues in the School of Medicine don't understand that and minimize the importance of tenure. Well, you don't get much with tenure, right? Well, no, you don't get much with tenure because you do cell biology of, you know, parathyroid hormone, you know, as it relates to signaling in bone, right? That's great. No, that's not controversial. And, it, you know, what I do isn't controversial either, but people have made it controversial. 
Sure. Um, and so therefore, those kinds of protections are important for, for people like me. And you talk about a very long process and mm-hmm. a long process that is exacerbated by having that national that national office as well. Can you talk about some of the things that you've used to keep you both focused, but also just able to exist along that long time frame? So how do you avoid burnout? How do you manage stress and how do you stay interested in what you're doing? Um, that's a great question. And if I had the answers to that, <laughs> right, we would, uh, I'd be a lot wealthier for sure. What keeps me interested in my work is just the drive for curiosity. You know, I've always been a curious person. And so, so actually, I think having now made it over this hurdle has reinvigorated my interest in the work that I need to do, or that I want to do, right? So now I have the freedom to take on longer term projects that aren't going to need to be completed within time frames so that I can establish a reputation, right? Um, I can work on a project or an- try to answer a question that might take me five to 10 years to answer, and it won't really affect my my job security, right? Um, so one of the things that, that many people outside of academia don't understand is that when it comes to the promotion and tenure process, it's up or out, right? So either you get promoted and tenured or you get a year to find another job. And so job security isn't there. It's either you have a job for life, right? Or, you know, until you mess up so bad that, you know, they have cause to fire you or you don't have a job Mm -hmm. starting one year from now. So find one. And so now that I have that security, um, I'm able to take on those longer term projects a little bit better or with a little more ease, I should say. So I think because of that, that's helping me avoid burnout, right? Now I can get back to answering questions that I was have always been interested in, but didn't really have the energy to put effort into because I didn't know if the payoff would come soon enough. Mm-hmm. And so I needed to find ways to to get sooner, you know, earlier payoff to establish that reputation. The other way that I kind of avoid burnout is by finding new collaborations. You know, I've got a collaboration now um, that started a couple of years ago when my colleague, Rachel Menegas, Dr. Rachel Menegas was here at the IU School of Dentistry. She's now moved on to the University of North Texas, but she and I got a couple of different grants to do OI-based work. And because she was in the School of Dentistry, we started working on craniofacial biology with regard to um, to OI. And so we actually have a paper in review right now looking at, at growth trajectories of bones in the face with in mice that have OI versus their wild type littermates. And uh, that never would have happened if we hadn't just been sitting around, you know, chewing the fat and, uh, <laughs> and hey, I'm working on this. You know, I know you've got this skill set. Would you like to collaborate uh, on something? And she got excited about the, the project and then she took it and drove it. And so finding new ways to connect with people nearby is, is keeping things fresh for me. Yeah. And we've, we've come towards the end of our time together, but I do have one more question. And it is the question that I always end these discussions on. And it is, what is a misconception about what you do that you would like to clear up right now? Um, a misconception about what I do that I would like to clear up is that people don't need to put effort into communicating their work to the public. And I will just use two words to amplify that, coronavirus. 
<laughs> um, what actually we have going on right now, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not an infectious disease researcher, so I don't have that expertise, but I do have the expertise of explaining science to the public. And for the most part, um, the public has been treated to watching science happen in real time. But now is an opportunity to explain in a way that maybe is much more impactful now than it would have been, say, six months ago, that there is the difference between peer-reviewed, replicated research and pre-print server uh, manuscripts that haven't been peer-reviewed and you know might have something interesting to say, but when you look at the media accounts for both of them, you wouldn't be able to tell which one is more solid than the other. What we're seeing now is a is a renewed distrust in science because the public can't make sense of what's going on and things are changing every day. And, you know, first we shouldn't wear masks, now we should wear masks. No, that's not what people were saying. People were saying, you shouldn't be wearing masks right now because you shouldn't be leaving your home. Give your masks to the people who are on the front lines so that they can actually protect those who are in the hospital now and, and stay at home. And now it's, well, now you're telling me to wear a mask. I thought it wasn't effective. No, that's not what anyone was saying before. What they were saying was that it wasn't necessary right then because of different extenuating circumstances. And so the misconception is that the public doesn't need to hear from scientists explaining things in a way that they can digest. And that is absolutely wrong. I faced this criticism from colleagues in my own department. You're wasting your time. Why are you doing this? Now we're all benefiting. So to that, I say, hey, thank you, Tenure. <laughs> School of Medicine <laughs> saw it as important, and uh, I'm not going to stop doing what I've been doing. Thank you so much for talking with me, Jason. Just a little bit of a peek behind the podcasting curtain. Jason was just about to go on, I believe, a weeks-long spring break when we did this recording, so even more thanks for taking that precious free time and, and spending it with talking to a doofus like me. And of course, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to receive that training that may one day even make me a science communicator or somebody who can communicate effectively. Don't forget to join us back here in two weeks when we will have our follow-up episode on this interview. And there were a lot of topics that we could have covered, but I thought it could be interesting to look into something that's, that's theory-based. So what we're going to cover in the follow-up episode is the angiosperm coevolution hypothesis. Thank you so much for listening. If you want more information about Science Night, be sure to look at our website, SciNight.com. Dot com, where we'll have show notes, links to past episodes, and if we're ever allowed to gather in groups again, potentially new live events. Thank you also to the River Power Podcast Mill. If you want to learn more about this group of creators, check out the River Power page on any of your podcatchers we have great shows like pulp from beyond the veil too many hats and if you are not sick of hearing me check out windsor live where me and my co-host chris goulet talk about the goings-on in windsor vermont the center of the universe thank you so much for listening and have a great night